you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and here this month to talk with me about another famous first edition. This time we're going all the way back to the 1970s to discuss famous first edition number F7, All-Star Comics number three is my pal, Gord Tolton. Hi, Gord. How are you, Bob? <laughs> Did I call you Bob? Uh, you can call, uh, yeah, I guess that's okay. okay. <laughs> my mommy, my mom used to call me that when I was a teenager. I guess it's okay for now. So uh, it's nice to have you on. Apparently, this is your very first appearance on a Fire and Water Network it show. It certainly is. Although I think I've been listening to it since the beginning, and I've gotten a lot of entertainment out of this network. So I feel I owe you a little bit of a a bit, a bit of a callback here. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much. Like I said, I can't. I feel like I've known you for so long that I couldn't believe this is your very first appearance on any of our shows, so I'm glad to have you. Not at all. Thank you. All right, so like I said, we're here to talk about Famous First Edition number F7, All-Star Comics number three, but before we get to this particular comic, I mean, Gord, I have to ask, what is your history with the Treasury format? I get the sense it's maybe a little similar to mine. Well, first I have to say what Johnny Thunder might say. Hey, look, Rob, the Justice Society of America has its own Treasury. Say, you'd think they'd ask us to talk about it on a podcast. Well, my secret origin, I saw my first comics around 1967 or 68 with the new look era of Batman or Detective Comics by the Infantino era. So pretty much hooked from there, read all sorts of comics from Silver and Bronze Age Superman, the Looney Tunes, Hanna-Barbera from Gold Key, Charlton, Dell, etc. All manner of licensed properties. Pretty much of it was art on paper. I wanted to look at it. Because I'm a Westerner, I loved Western comics, so there was a lot of Kid Colt and Rawhide Kid and stuff like that. Military comics appealed to me. So there was a lot of what I'd call barbershop comics. comics. The stuff that my dad or my uncles weren't too embarrassed to buy for me. <laughs> so I was pretty much independent for a lot of years on what was purchased, so I was able to eventually use my own dimes and quarters earned from various chores. I was attracted very early to the DC Bronze Age and just about any kind of team up comic or super teams appealed to me more than so much than solo. So the, the JLA, the Teen Titans, Avengers, Defenders, and also the very many Golden Age reprints that were appearing. Uh, kind of the Bridwell era as back features and in the super spectacular format, Wanted, Secret Origins and such like that. So we lived on a farm and I had some issues with the things that happened on farms and turned out I was born with asthma and the allergies to grains and grasses. So oh, that's a bit of a guess problem. what happens on summer on farms? Grains and grasses grow, so <laughs> things pollinate a lot. And being stuck in the house uh, at the expense of my life well, welcome to COVID early, <laughs> there was a lot of reading time and in the younger grades comics were a real treat. Now the treasuries when I, I i first saw the shazam treasury when it came out about 73 but that one dollar was just a little bit of a bridge too far one dollar canadian you realize not to mention the huge size so i wasn't initially sold on the format so 
Now, I was very, very sorely tempted when the Famous First started to get released. You got Action 1, Detective 27, Wiz 2, Sensation, all of that. Saw them on the stands. I'd flip through them, but the cash wasn't easy to come by, and I knew if I'd packed one of these great big hoarded comics at home, I'd get a lecture from someone if I spent a dollar on something as big and frivolous as a treasury comic. You know, I could buy five comics for the price of a large format, and, or two Super right, Spectaculars, right. or giant-sized Marvels, so it was the economics, damn it. Uh, but then in 1975 came this. Uh, I have to go back a little bit. As I said, I loved the JLA whenever I could get one. And about 1971, at the age of eight, I saw my first JLA JSA team up. And it was one with twins, uh, written by Mike Frederick. And I don't think the story was all that good, but it floored me. Um, I knew who Superman, Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, and of course Robin the Boy Wonder were. But who are these guys with the same names on the other side of the page? I, I didn't know what the word doppelganger meant, so I just called them the twins. But I think I caught the idea of what Earth 2 was right away. And this letter page has told me that this meeting was something very, very special, that they met every summer. Not all that hard, right? Don't have to have a crisis no. or anything. <laughs> but that idea continued to gel in my head, and so there was little way of, at that point in time, you know, no internet and no back issues so much, of learning what the GSA actually meant beyond the, the twin concept. And, and those days days they didn't write up comics in the Funkin' Wagnalls, so I just filled that, filed that in my brain and waited for the next team-up. Guess what the next year's team-up was? JLA 100. Oh, that's and right. You know that yes. one. The famous three-way team-up with the seven soldiers. To add to my confusion, the twins weren't there, but there were new <laughs> JSAers. New JSAers, I say, to me. And iconic-looking characters like Sandman, Wildcat, Dr. Midnight, Dr. Fate. I mean, this is even better. And I got to know new JLA members, too, like Metamorpho, Zatanna, Adam Strange, and such like that. And then the Seven Soldiers, which is the beginning of my lifelong fascinations for the Cowboy Vigilante. Oh, I love that character. Oh, yes. It's too bad that, uh, yeah, that could be a treasury someday. Do some Mort Meskins. Throw that together. Oh, that would be so or beautiful. Or Gray Moral, oh yeah. God. Oh, my God. You hear me, <laughs> DC? Yeah, book. Rob just ordered you to make a treasury. <laughs> we do make things happen at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Good. So, yeah, all right, we've, we've put it out in the ether. I now. guess what came out of my realization was eventually that the JSA, through reading, like, the Bridwell reprints and such, was a much grander and a much older story than I could have imagined. And DC was arming me with ways to learn more. Like I said, wanted super spectacular series golden age reprints there was in particular a, a batman 50 center which besides giving me the original two-face saga had uh, golden age reprints of the specter dr fate wildcat blackhawk the canary and so many more and of course the best part was e nelson bridwell himself and his text pieces yeah i'm not I'm that geek that read the texts. I read the letter. Oh, I did too. I thought they were magical and devoured them. And, and you know, E. Nelson was my professor in earth Twoology. So my <laughs> canon, shall we say, was built. And back in that day, as I said, I didn't need no crises to tell me who belonged on what earth. So there was no need to fix that. <laughs> That's a debate for a, for another oh, day. Oh, it sure but, is. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but in, in 1975, I finally got a chance to pick up a treasury at hand. And for me, it was this doozy. I was 11. I had the cash. I was the last child in the house. And there was less people to fart around with my stuff, so it was all safe. 
So on a drizzly, half-snowy Easter weekend, I helped my dad with the calving, which is calves being born and such. That's a spring ritual and activity. And um, just not to bring the show down, in the birthing, a cow died and left a live orphan calf that I spent most of the weekend trying to bottle feed with a beer bottle. One of those things you'll learn on the farm. So we'd actually had the calf in the house to warm up. But ultimately, the pneumonia, not having mother's milk, the little fella died. Sorry. Uh, Pretty much in our basement. Nothing to do with this comic, but it does help me remember the timing like the actual weekend so i'm going into bailey territory telling too much (laughs) now um out of all this my mom and always and i always made our usual saturday trip into town for groceries and this was usually my time she'd shop and i'd walk the very safe streets of Tabor because at the heyday of comics distribution there were at least get this 10 outlets in a town of 5,000 people on on the other side of the border where i could buy comics we didn't miss much in distribution, I have to say. <laughs> Two drugstores, a couple supermarkets, few confectionaries, at least one Chinese restaurant, and one dedicated newsstand and candy shop where you could indulge in four-color delights. And today in that same town, I don't live very far from it uh, still, with double the population, there isn't one outlet where you can buy a comic. Oh, wow. There's not, there's not even a comic store? Well, you have to go to the city of Lethbridge to get that. And wow. There's, there's Oh, a couple there, but you know, what's what I'm saying? These little towns and uh, the little town I live in right now, there isn't a comic spinner rack anywhere. Oh, so yeah. hey, comic books are missing something, not being where people they are. They sure no. are, and uh, you know the price point's a big problem. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, distribution is pretty good on our side of the border, and the cover prices, best part, were identical. A U.S. dollar was a Canadian dollar at that point in time. That has changed a lot. But something new appeared in town that day. It was called a 7-Eleven. <laughs> and that day I had my first Slurpee. And I must have had money burning in my pocket that day because between the Slurpee and my comic shopping, I must have spent nearly $2. <laughs> well, that's probably an hour's laborer's wages at that time. We're very close. So among my purchases of just two comics that day, though, and both were landmarks in my education of the Golden Age and of the Second World War. Um, the first I bought on an IGA supermarket market was giant size invaders number one. Oh, cool so you had the jsa and the invaders exactly the so the roy thomas and then the second one i bought from a store called candy corner was this famous first edition in the strangely numbered f7 and uh, i'll let you explain the numbering i never did catch on to that I, i've never quite been able to figure it out my myself uh, i've always assumed that the it seems to be that the famous first editions their numbering is sort of intertwined with limited collector's edition or something in some cases and in some other cases not i uh you've got like f5 f6 f7 f8 and then all of a sudden we get to the superman one a bunch of years later it's like f61 so i'm like all right where's that (laughs) i don't don't know there's some accountant somewhere in dc's offices where this made a lot of sense but uh, to the rest of us i've looked at that on a mike's amazing world and i'm going i think they were just making this up as they go so i might have I been. think the seven was the seventh of their famous firsts, but where the F's and the C's and all of that, the rest of it, I I don't know, and I don't think it even matters anymore. No, I mean limited collector's edition starts with like C twenty one. We're like, what, where's the where were the first twenty of the like? Why is it just C one? So yeah, I've always been baffled as to how they conclude these. So things. let's just say that uh, between Invaders one and this All Star Comics, unfortunately, I don't have the Invaders one. Um, you get those parental purges that tend right. to happen. And on a farm, you have a thing called a burning barrel. 
and uh, that has that does, that, not, is, that does not sound that good. has caused me great grief because I know a copy of uh, Giant Size X Men number one went in that burning barrel. Oh no! Oh yes! No. I never no. stopped letting my mother know that uh, oh. you know you you you. I lost a car in that burning barrel. <laughs> that's oh no! So, oh, that's heartbreaking. But you know oh, the memory no. is still there. So you know, let's just say that April East Easter weekend of '75, Ranger Gord was in Hog. Heaven. Oh and, man! Between the X Men story and the cow, you're really bringing us down. Okay, here. sorry, sorry. But <laughs> this very copy of uh, Famous First F Seven is just a little over 45 years later. Is the only thing that I have from my childhood that's older than than 45 is me. Wow! Did you go on now? Did you go on to get more treasuries as they came out? I did. Or did they yes. Pop up. And around? in fact, later that year, because you know that age of time, you go from uh, grade six to grade seven, and and you have a little bit more cash in your pocket. And I do have most of the treasuries i know i have uh the two star wars treasuries uh the chicken ones i have the superman spider-man uh which was two dollars my gosh i had to sneak mm. that one into the house i'll tell you <laughs> and i know i have uh oh i think the marvel superheroes ones uh which had a black widow story that probably brought me into puberty <laughs> And 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 a few others, and uh, yeah, like I said, they seem to have survived the parental purge. I I know I had a uh, an orange bag that came from a menswear store in Tabor, and and uh, for some reason they all ended up in that bag, and they were very very well preserved. <laughs> I think I had them at the bottom of my clothes drawer, so that they didn't they didn't uh, find their way the way the rest of the comics always went. It's amazing how some things managed to survive through by hook or crook, sort of, you know. And then they managed to, you know. I mean, I'm guessing that your mom maybe the treasuries just looked like they were more permanent. Maybe the price point. Maybe she saw that they were two dollars and a dollar, and she said, "Well, I don't I don't want to throw this out." He spent a little bit of money on these. Do you think maybe she put that much thought? Yeah. into Yeah, and I, as far as my father, you know, God love him, but uh, literature didn't mean that much to him so you know he, he didn't even know how comics came about he, as far as he concerned they just you know popped in and on the spinner racks in these little grocery stores and then they just popped out of his life and he didn't really care mm-hmm. one way or the other so that's a <laughs> that's amazing that's well said i it's funny you you mentioned you called these uh bar you mentioned barbershop comics and i mean i obviously i have my show my mountain comic show but i this this book in particular and one other of the famous first editions i think of as hairdresser comics because <laughs> i remember in and uh, this book came out, by the way, it came out March 6th, 1975. And uh, we've talked about in previous episodes that the treasuries, because of their higher price point, tended to last longer on newsstands uh, than other books because the, the news vendor would make a little more money off of them. So they let them hang around a lot longer. And I remember my mom, and again, this must have been the summer because I would have been in school otherwise. Uh, although I guess only would have only been four, maybe not. But I, I my, my mom would have to get her hair done at this place in the mall, the Chamonix Mall in, in Pennsylvania, suburb of Philadelphia. And she would take me with her, and she had to find a way to give me something to do during the half hour, hour that it took to do a woman's hair back then. My mom had this big kind of beehive thing, and they literally had the, the big cones they put on people's yeah. heads. I mean, it was like everything you saw back then. And she would buy me comics, and I remember specifically her buying me a famous first edition Flash Comics, number one, which came after this, and this one. And I remember sitting in this little plastic chair just reading this comic while she was like about, you know, 20 feet away getting her hair done. And, and it worked because I didn't make a peep during the time it took for her to get her hair done because I was so enraptured by what I was reading. Because like you talked about, this was a portal to a 
another world. I was familiar with the Justice Society through JLA, but I had never seen like 40s comics. So this just, and they looked so strange. They looked so different than what anything I was used to. So this really was like a portal to another world. What, this just looked so odd. I I had a hard time wrapping my brain around it. When you got uh, sent to the barbershop, and believe me, in a small conservative town in in the West, you got sent to the barbershop quite often uh, in the (laughs) 70s. But there were always, uh, there was the fishing magazines and the hunting magazines and the popular mechanics, but there was always a small stack of comics that the barber would go to the drugstore and pick up and throw out down. And they never had superhero comics. They might have a Spider-Man now and then uh, because they'd recognize that from the cartoon. But it was always stuff like Sergeant Rock and Kid Colt and uh, Jonah Hex and things like that. I guess the stuff that, uh, you know, manly barbershops aren't going to have guys in tights kicking around. But uh, gunfighters and uh, war heroes are be- are just fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you you talked about the other treasuries you got. Did they all they all lasted or just some they all lasted throughout the years? Oh wow. Okay, cool. So you have a whole big you have this big collection of them. Now, where do you store them by the way? I always I've like got to ask them in a, where in do a, they keep in them? a dresser drawer still. <laughs> That's okay. the only thing I've got in the house that you can actually put them in. A nice big dresser drawer and I don't keep clothes in it anymore. I've got other books and things like that in there. But uh you know it just makes for a very a very nice store. Unfortunately, I I have a hard time finding the bags the the bags and boards for them but uh, that's what it is and it's funny you brought up Flash Comics uh, number one because I just obtained a copy of that last fall I was at uh, some sale somewhere they had one of those uh, distribution things where um, guys will rent a hotel room for a Saturday morning and I walked in there and boom the first thing that hit me was uh, the Flash Comics number one for 20 bucks and my wife was with me and I said this thing's going home I don't care if I buy anything else in this room this is going home so that's a good now I have Flash number one so yeah my my $1 in 1975 seems like such a value now. <laughs> it sure does. So as I said, this book came out on March 6th, 1975. It reprints All-Star Comics number three. It is by written by, of course, Gardner F. Fox. The artists are all over the place here. We've got art by Edward E. Hibbard, Sheldon Moldoff, Bernard Bailey, Sheldon Mayer, Chad Grothkoff, Howard Sherman, Ben Flinton, and Mart Nodell. Before I get to the story, I do want to ask you, Gord, the cover. Uh, this famous image of our heroes standing around the table. You really can't look too closely at the perspective of this cover because the table makes no sense. The table is kind of straight up and down as opposed to how it would be you'd see it from uh, you'd see it if you were sitting there looking at it but you can't you can't pay too much attention to it and of course this image has been used many many years i mean it was done even in live action for pete's it's, sakes i mean that's how iconic this thing is well just last week within the last week the the i believe it's the third edition of the new star girl series they had a total recreation of these uh these same characters sitting around that table and you're right this thing has just been homaged all over the place uh just about any super team book that you can think of has had an homage to this round table thing and uh if you look into roy thomas's recollections he thinks it's just the idea of the knights of the round table yep and the the one thing that you also had to know about it i i thank michael bailey and scott gardner for this on their tales of the jsa that you have to come to the realization this is not only the first super team book this is the first intercompany crossover it's you know what it's hard for people to think about that because obviously we're also familiar with these characters being part of the same company but yeah dc comics didn't exist at the time it was national was kind of a, a collection of different companies there was there was like all different sort of sub labels and this was them all getting together for the first time so yeah it was it, it doesn't feel like it's intercompany because we're familiar with them being all together for so long but yeah that is an that's actually half of these um 
characters were from National Comics, and half of them were from Max Gaines's All American Comics. Yeah, and yep. Uh, it's funny because in, in a way, the, the the more popular characters were actually from uh, the All American Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. They all came from the All American side of it. And at one point um, in All Star Comics's history, down about three or four years from this issue, uh, Gaines and uh, Donafeld and Leibowitz had a falling out, and for about a year or so. Uh, there was a split in their comics, and uh, in All-Star Comics, all of a sudden, the DC characters, or national characters, I should say, disappeared from All-Star Comics. And for the rest of the run, it was all All-American characters that were in the JSA. Now, they eventually patched things up and got back together. Right. And, of course, you know, if you go into the whole genealogy of it, that's where Mad Magazine comes from uh, right, with the right, Gaineses. Right. But uh, we don't have to go that far with it. Right. <laughs> Again, for, for the rest of us that have lived with this idea that superheroes commingle, we're all familiar with it now. But in 1940, this was pretty a pretty novel approach. I mean, Superman and Batman had not even met at this point. So this was Gardner Fox. And, of course, I talked about about Gardner Fox a couple episodes ago with Jennifer DeRoss, who wrote the book on him. I mean, this was really a novel idea that uh, that he had of, like, let's put all the heroes together before no one had ever really thought about that. And, and really – Here they here they are all together. And really, we can talk about this later when we get to the center splash, but this was a marketing technique. Yes. This was a yep. whole gimmick of, like, say you were a kid that had only ever seen Flash comics. Uh, you pick up All-Star comics because you see the Flash on it, and all of a sudden, hey, who are these other guys? And hopefully you'll follow them back to their publications. So when when you go through the plot of this original book, as will come true, you know, this isn't a, a, a real team uh, adventure. No, it's not. But uh, it's meant to market you, to show you, you know, what the art is like, what you'll find if you go over to More Fun or go over to All-American Comics or go over to Adventure and such. Oh, that's one of the things I have in my notes is how explicitly this is a commercial venture of how much of this is an ad for the other books. And we'll get into that again as we get through the story. So, okay. So as I mentioned, the, this comic came out on March 6, 1975. The title is The First Meeting of the Justice Society of America. Local idiot Johnny Thunder is at a newsstand looking at the assortment of comic books starring <laughs> real-life superheroes like The Flash, Green Lantern, Dr. Fate, and the Spectre, all members of the Justice Society of America. Angry he has not been invited to join, Johnny accidentally summons his Thunderbolt, who boots JT in the ass and sends him flying across town to where the JSA members are assembling. After showing the various heroes that he has powers too, though he can't control them, the heroes sit down to a dinner. Johnny Thunder suggests each hero tell a story about their most exciting adventure, and the Flash goes first. Flash's story is about how he helped raise a sunken galleon, the Sancta Joanna, while fighting off a would-be modern pirate named Burley Billy. Hawkman goes next, detailing his battle against the cult leader Mazda and his horde of fire ghosts. Along with him is his helpmate, Shira Sanders, who helps Hawkman escape Mazda's exploding volcano. Next, the Spectre tells about his first battle with the evil magic being named Oom, who starts off killing people by night but ends up fighting the Spectre out in space, at one point even sicking a giant fire-breeding lizard on him. Our man's adventure is a little more down-to-earth, talking about the time he fought a gang of crooks who wore duplicates of his costume to commit their crime. Before Sandman can tell his story, another unexpected visitor arrives, Ma Hunkle, a.k.a. the Red Tornado. 
She's irked that she has not been invited to join the JSA as well, but just as quickly departs. The other heroes wonder why, and Flash points out that on the way into the window of the JSA's building, Tornado's long johns got caught and shredded, meaning she was Donald Ducking it. The heroes have a good laugh. Sandman tells of his adventure stopping a mad scientist named Dr. Faversham, who was turning people into mad giant. Dr. Fate recalls his fight with a wizard who tried to kill him and Inza Kramer. After Johnny tells a story of his own, which is really a text piece, the Atom delineates his halting of a gold shipment robbery. Finally, Green Lantern tells of how he and a famed radio reporter helped unseat a crooked police commissioner named Mason. Immediately thereafter, the JSA gets a message from the FBI. The head of the Bureau wants to meet with all the members for a top-secret mission. The JSAers agree and head for Washington. All right, so, Gord, uh, what do you think of this as an adult? I mean, obviously, as a kid, you must have loved it. But as an adult, when you look at it, what do you think of this as a, as a cohesive story? Because as you said, it really isn't – it's really a bunch of short stories with a, with a framing piece. Well, I can remember I, I mused as a kid wondering if this wasn't all stuff that was coming out of reprints of the other books. But it's not. This this is all original, right. but it's almost done in the style, like if you were to pick up Flash comics, you would see basically this story just without the framing sequence. I think it's interesting because, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, Maldoff and uh, and Fox and Hibbert and everybody else, they, they're kids. Um, they don't know what they're doing yet. They don't know what this form is going to be taken. All they know is the bosses have told them, hey, get these guys together. And I think Fox, uh, this, this is very Gardner Fox. Because if there's anything, one thing Fox I could note for is organization. There will be organization. You're going to know what's going to be on every page and who's going to be in it. And, of course, Fox would later pioneer the idea of eventually letting these characters team up and going off onto themselves. And that would uh, transfer over to Justice League of America as well. And... Um, I, I think it's a very good because I think the idea of All-Star, like this is All-Star 3, All-Star 1 and 2 were basically burn-offs of inventory material. And I think at number 3, they just said, you know, we might as well have these people appearing and, and talking to each other while we're into this burn-offs. Um, but I, I, I'm just glad that they didn't linger on this format for too long. Mm-hmm. And because on the next, uh, All-Star 4 is a corker. I don't know if you've ever read that in reprint. I have. But it's an amazing, amazing story. Uh, it still doesn't team them off, but it, uh, it is full-on action. And it gets them right into the, uh, the war that America isn't even in yet at that point in time. Right, right. And I think something else that is kind of neat, um, even though we're in, um, you know, the fall of 1940 with this publication, they're not really talking about the war at all. In fact, I don't think it's till you get to about the last cover with an ad for model airplanes that you really get an idea there's a war going on at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. They really don't get into it. The only uh, – they don't – they do mention uh, – there is a reference to where Superman, Batman, and Robin are. Oh, yeah. And of course – and I mean they could have said, well, they're in the – they're fighting – because they were not fighting World War II either. They mentioned that, well, we're all here having a meeting, and so we need superheroes out there. So that's why <laughs> – that's what Superman and Batman and Robin are doing. I wanted to it's speak. Very nice of them to throw the heroes a solid. I like wanted that. to speak that while they're still at the dinner table. I don't think anybody ever actually eats at this dinner. But uh, <laughs> how does the Adam eat? Exactly. <laughs> uh, of course, we have these eight people, and Johnny Thunder has crashed the party. Then they talk about Superman, Batman, and Robin, and they talk about the Red Tomato. I mean, sorry, the Red Tornado. <laughs> and uh, within these two panels, they have given you a bit of a preview. Goes, hey, you like these eight guys together? Pretty soon, we're going to be nine. And so, you know, they're almost giving 
given you, if, if you read between the lines, an expansion of just, hey, just about anybody can show up in this justice society. So It's kind of amazing to think that Adam says, where's Scribbly? Like, even Scribbly was considered to could be roped in here? I mean, he was a humor character. Yeah. I mean, that showed you that clearly Sheldon Mayer was just sort of playing favorites a little bit, that they were getting him in there, because they're like, Scribbly? Like, what? <laughs> why would he even be in this team? I mean, to me, Johnny Thunder's bad enough as the as the humor character and being, oh, a, Johnny. being a goof. I actually, I would have rather had Scribbly than Johnny Thunder. <laughs> I've never liked Johnny Thunder, and I don't like him here, because he's just such a clown, you know? He's just like, uh, by the way, uh, we should mention the Thunderbolt appears. The Thunderbolt uh, traditionally was pink, but here he's colored blue, and he doesn't really show up when he shows up, he doesn't like sort of announce himself to Johnny Thunder. He just he's sort of like a an imp I, that gets Johnny Thunder in trouble. He's not like his servant, which we would, he would kind of become later. I don't think he uh, the Thunderbolt had a personification at in the first uh, number of issues of Flash Comics. I think he was just kind of an invisible force. Um, you never really saw him. He certainly never talked. He just showed up and made things happen. And I, I think that's about as good as you got. And eventually they decided that, you know, we need a visual to go along with this. So that's when they create yeah. the pink thunderbolt. Um, the uh, the Flash, the first, as I mentioned, the first story is the Flash story. It's not bad. It's it's a little on the dull side because, again, he's not fighting a villain. It's more about it's just an adventure. Although I do like that when the Flash sticks on a shark, we actually get the, the shark has thought balloons. I was going to call this. Point when th- I was going to call this chapter flash man <laughs> uh, when the flash throws the shark around the mama the shark's like mama help me mama i'm like okay <laughs> the sh- sharks think like and i think i might need my fellow albertan blaine dowler to explain all the physics of how super speed works under under underwater <laughs> and how does he breathe oh and he's talking how does the flash breathe? And he's talking yeah and he's talking too yeah i, don't know. I, I assume they haven't come speed. up with the thought balloon idea and that's what we're seeing is well, the, the shark is thinking, though. They know the shark. Oh, that's talk, right. So the shark's oh, it's right in, yeah. there in front of me. Yeah. But so, the Flash yeah, is just gabbing up a storm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, at the end of the Flash chapter, right at the very bottom of the page, it's right at the point where the heroes sort of hand it off. You know, one hero hands it off to the next hero. It says at the bottom, read the Flash each month in Flash comics. So, yeah, they were hitting the advertising thing hard. I mean, at the end of every chapter, they have an ad at the bottom of the page. Marvel would repeat that in the 70s with those little inner things they would put at the very bottom of the page. You know, you'd be reading Iron Man. And at the bottom of the page three on Iron Man, it's like, you know, who are the Legion of Monsters? Find out in Where Monsters Dwell, number six. You're like, what? Okay. And then, of course, TV would emulate that. In the 2000s, where like the ads would start popping up at the bottom of the screen while you're watching the show. So, comic, again, Gardner Fox ahead of the curve here. I also like how these stories are pretty much full length. And by full length, they're around, you know, anywhere between 68 pages. Uh, you know, they're not cheaping out on this. Because if you go back to the comics that they're featured in, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see 8, 10, page, eight, 10, 12 page stories. So they're not cheaping out. Yeah, they're full stories. I mean, they are they are beginning, middle, and end adventures. They're they're small, but they are not uh, they're not like chapters of a larger story. So the the Hawkman story, obviously, immediately you can tell art wise. Oh, there's a lot more sophistication going on here. No no offense to Mr. Everett Hibbert who drew the cover, the iconic cover. Uh, but Sheldon Moldoff's Hawkman looks very Prince Valiant, very Flash Gordon. I mean, it it really is much more developed than what uh, you've seen in the previous chapter. And it's kind of almost a little jarring. 
to go from this Flash story, which looks kind of crude, and then you get to this Hawkman thing, which is pretty sophisticated. And I have to mention, during the Hawkman segment, when he goes to retrieve the ancient weapons to go after this villain, he grabs the Hammer of yep. Thor. He is worthy. <laughs> Not Mjolnir, but the Hammer of Thor. Hawkman is worthy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's it's really nice. It really, it's a very nicely drawn. I like the that little art. Uh, is just incredible. The suits they put on to go into the volcano, like the heat resistant suits. That's a nice little touch. I like that. If they had made Hawkman action figures, you could have had an alternate there. I like the design of Mazda, the villain, not the car, the villain. And you know, he's got this I, big skull on his head. Mazda actually was a thing. That was a company that was did exist in Japan at the time. And uh, during the war, they would go on to make uh, rifles for the Imperial Japanese Army. Oh, wow. So Mazda oh, was gee. a war profiteer. Oh, well. oh, wow. Good to know. I'm glad I don't drive their cars anymore. So Sierra uh, <laughs> just looks amazing. Uh, there's does. this one she part. I, I love how Flash, you know, ba- or Flash, the uh, Hawkman, these people get around and go to authority. You don't see anybody get on a plane or everything. Hawkman just puts on his wings, grabs his hammer. He one point he's in New York. The next thing he's in Krakatoa. You know, he, he right. just flew 10,000 miles and didn't even muss his hair. <laughs> and then he meets it's a, it's, uh, it's a Sierra. And I have to say, I, and I, I have to credit Bailey and Gardner for coming up with this on their Tales of the JSA podcast. But, yeah, Shiera and Carter, they get it on in between panels here. Oh, I th- yes. At, I at one so. point, you I see mean, her bra strap. Uh, you see a bra strap in a 1940 comic. The coat wasn't whoop, around. Sauce. And in the next panel, well, she's covering herself up. And I think that bra is probably on the floor somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ooh, the we're just going <laughs> to... We're just gonna we're just gonna move on. All right. So the the the, the Spectre sequence, the Spectre story takes such a goofy turn because it opens up like a murder mystery. These people are just getting murdered in the middle of the night, and then it turns out to be this statue that comes alive, who kind of looks like um, I don't even he looks like a bridge troll kind of like this weird this oom character, and then like it's all like uh, you know it all takes place in like a, a, a city. And then all of a sudden we go into outer space and there's like a fire dragon going on. It's like, what the hell? Like, like what a weird story. Like, it just takes such a weird turn. Uh, and, and it would, you know, of course, the later the Spectre stories, you'd see that one where the he's that villain is smashing the earth on top of Spectre's head. So they would get into this weird stuff. But, I mean, I, it wasn't one of my favorites because I think the art by, I believe it's uh, Bernard Bailey is, is pretty rough. And the panels are kind of like all the panels are sort of the same size. So it is, it's, to me, it's a little dull to look at. But I enjoyed it for just how weird it Spectre's was. Spectre's one of those characters that's just really hard to deal with. You know, I remember his origin, the Jerry Siegel origin that they reprinted in Secret Origins, and I loved it. I thought it was a great two-part story. And then after that, they just didn't seem to know what the hell to do with this character. And and I think for a lot of years, they really didn't. Right. It's like, I mean, what can he do? What can he do? I mean, it seems ridiculous. You know, even as a kid, I always thought it was funny that there was a team that had Dr. Fate, Spectre, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern on it, and also the Atom. I'm sorry, but what's the Atom bringing yeah, to you this? Got, and the, you got the Charles Atlas customer against the finger of God here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really understand all that. How that works, and I like they clearly haven't worked out the the persona because the Spectre is just like a regular guy, like he just talks like a regular dude. He doesn't talk like some creepy dead guy that they would sort of retroactively turn him. I always wanted the Golden Age no prize the Spectre. You know what was he like? You know from forty to forty four or forty five when he or whatever it was he disappeared. Is that basically you know Jim Corrigan? didn't really know what he was doing you know all of a sudden he wakes up you know one point he's going into a barrel of cement 
and the next thing you know he wakes up and like as i said he's the finger of god and he can do anything he wants and i think he just kind of went a little nuts and didn't really know what to do with his powers I think I think it was Alan Moore, maybe, who who brought up the idea that the Spectre, as he as he lost touch with his Jim Corrigan side, became more and more removed from reality, and that's why he became more weird. That was the explanation for why, in the beginning, he was more like a regular guy, and then as things went on, he became more and more detached because he just lost his touch with humanity. And I, that I was like, that works for yep. me. So um, the Hour Man story is fun. There's, you've got these – all these guys dressed as Hour Man. I don't know where you would go to get an Hour Man costume but, exactly. But the Hour Man's um, co- – yeah, well, apparently, you know, Hour Man was popular enough that there was a run that people were making Hour Man costumes. And, um, and of course, everybody would all look alike when they went in that Hour Man. Nobody's batter, thinner, <laughs> taller, shorter, anything else. And I – they're all the same. They're all like 5'11", white male, relatively well And I have to bring this up, you know, and uh, I think we've got a problem here in comics, you know, that we all need to address and we should all pay funds to as to why we have to have so many masquerade parties in superhero <laughs> stories in the 1940s. And it continues right up to the origin of Batgirl in the 60s. Oh, can I tell – that's funny you just brought that up. That made me think of um, many – God, decades ago in the 70s. Do you remember that show Heart to Heart yes. with Robert Wagner and 70 Powers? I used to watch that show, and, and I remember they did an episode with a masquerade party, and somebody came to the party dressed as Batman. <laughs> And I remembered, I was so excited to see Batman on a TV show, even though it was a guy in like a Jerry rigged costume. But I was like, ooh, it looked cool. I was like, I was love that he took the time to dress somebody up as uh, as Batman. Uh, that, that show was produced by Tom Mankiewicz, who, of course, oh, right. worked on the Superman. Yeah, he was the, I think he was the, not the showrunner, but the creator of the show. So, I mean, he has a, obviously connected to, to superheroes. And when they met, um, it was murder. It was murder. Um, I've always liked Our Man. I mean, I think obviously a guy that only has superpowers for an hour at a time and he has to take a pill to do it is a little like, eh, really? But I always thought his costume was really cool, like the hood, and I like the colors. Uh, I mentioned in uh, way back when Shag and I did the uh, Fire and Water on JLA 195 through 197, a JLA, JSA team up. That that chapter with Our Man drawn by George Perez is great, where he takes on the psycho pirate. Like, I remember reading that being like, give me an Our Man comic. This guy's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I think the concept is fine. It's just, you know, the idea of pill popping. Well, you know, that didn't quite go through the ages and, um, you know, no, not really. gave Nancy Reagan heart attacks, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the brilliance of Roy Thomas, too, is now one of the marketing techniques is they decided that Our Man really wasn't working in the JSA, at least at that point in time. And Roy Thomas kind of retconned that in with the idea that he had a drug habit. And that's why he had right. left the JSA. That's right. Because members went and came and went. And they didn't do big deals about it where people leave and goes, all of a sudden you had Dr. Midnight, you had Dr. Star- you had uh, Starman. You know, later had Black Canary. So, yeah, members came in and out. These were the founding guys, but some of them disappeared really quickly. But I, I agree on the look of the costumes. And I think that's what I love about the Golden Age is there was just so much energy. You know, like I said, there was young guys that just didn't know what they were doing. And they just, you know, grabbed pencils and, and put down what they thought in their mind's eye. And they didn't really pay much attention to it. And I think out of that energy, you know, we got costumes like this. And, uh, I, I, again, I go back to Stargirl in, in the very few opening of the very first episode they showed the hour man flopping down from a second story tier uh during a battle scene and that costume just looked as good as it does right here the whole beach towel and everything else (laughs) uh right after that we get the the red tornado page and i love that even red tornado gets her own 
uh, advertisement at the bottom of the page. The Red Tornado appears with Scribbly in every issue of All-American Comics. So, I mean, yeah, they were just marketing these characters left and right. DC's first costume superhero. There you go. <laughs> first costume superheroine. Pardon me. That's what I was headed. And every, right, it's I and when I it's funny when I was a kid, I always had a tough time remembering that it's a woman because they she's got that uh, uh, oven pot on her head, and so you really can't tell that it's a woman until unless someone says she or her. But I mean, she there's nothing to really denote that it's a man or a woman necessarily. But I thought it was funny that they gave her a whole page in the middle of the story. In the middle of all this adventure, we just stop for this kind of humor segment. Uh, where Red Tornado loses her pants and then disappears, which I think is funny. And then following that, we get this lustrous yes. two-page spread. And I remembered seeing this as a kid. And I, even though I knew that all these comics were no longer available, this thing made my mouth water because it was like – it just looked so cool because you have this big – and you'll be able to see this, by the way, on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. We're going to have images from this book. And there's this wonderful ad, and it says, All the best in comic magazine reading is contained in the largest selling group in the world. And then it shows covers of Flash Comics, All-American Comics, All-Star, Adventure, Batman, Detective, Action, Superman, and more fun. And it gives even the dates when they come out around the 7th of every month, the 1st of every month. I just – I loved all these sort of umbrella titles that were other than action and detective had gone by the, the way of the Dodo by the time seventies comic came around. But man, this ad is just great. I mean, this was why comics were so successful. You know, you pick it up, you know, for that tiny thin dime. And, and I don't think we really realize how much a dime is in 1940. Um, I'll probably talk about that. I want to talk about my parents a little bit at this point in time in this era, but you know, a dime was a meal. It wasn't mm-hmm. a Coke. It was a meal and a Coke. And, you know, you didn't spend a you know, to have a kid to have a dime. I mean, that kid better come home with some value. And they're coming home with 64 pages. What mm-hmm. does 64 pages get, get you in a modern comic book? I don't know. <laughs> or, or, Not a whole lot of story. Somebody might walk in and sit down or something. I think that would take place in 64 pages. Yeah, and then they'll have the meal and there you got to trade. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But yeah, this ad is just—it's just. I think what's—it's just so great to comment on. We talked about uh, Superman, Batman, and Robin, and here they're—they're shown here. And now we know retroactively that Superman and Batman, uh, pre crisis, are supposed to be in the Justice Society, but of course they're not in this book. And Superman and Batman would only appear a couple of times throughout the 40s in All-Star Comics. And I guess that speaks to something, too, that, get this, they actually worried about overexposing Superman and Batman. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that such a wonderfully quaint idea? Yeah, and now they have to appear in basically every book. <laughs> That's right. It's unreal. Yeah, we uh, over on Digest Cast, Shag and I just did an episode of Digest Cast on All-Star Comics, Justice Society, and the story they cover is in All-Star Comics number 37. That is the first time Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman appear together they, in All-Star Comics. Only- it's unreal. You just can't imagine such a thing. And the only time they were ever in a full adventure. It's a completely different world than the one we were living in at these heroes that they thought about that, that, oh, we, we can't, uh, we can't, we don't want to expose these heroes too much, but it's great that they're in the ad. Uh, I said, it's just marvelous. And it's one of the benefits of these famous first editions to reprint the book exactly as they appeared, not to sub out a modern ad or something like that. Because of course you mentioned, um, that 70s secret origins book and they would do that. They would, they would alter the reprints to, uh, change the, the, the advertisements 
to fit more modern, uh, you know, modern titles like the Aquaman reprint subs out the little blurb where it says, uh, buy more, look for Aquaman and more fun comics. They sub out adventure comics because that was what was going on at the time. That is the thing I loved about famous first editions is they are exactly the same book. So even though none of these titles except for action or detective are really, well, Superman and Batman too, are valid anymore, you still get to see the ad. And I, I love that as a kid and I love it now. So next up is the Sandman story. Uh, it's drawn, I believe, by Chad Groff. Kof, whose style I'm not really familiar with at all. It's pretty crude. Um, I love, much like Our Man, I love the Sandman costume. Yeah. I just think it's a great costume. I don't the the the, new, the one he traded in later to look more like a traditional superhero is to me not as interesting. Uh, I like the idea of the giants, like he's taking on a kind of Doctor Frankenstein sort of guy. So there's a horror element to it. It's pretty mellow. There's not any you know real serious violence, but just the idea that he's creating these sort of like mindless giants that are roaming the countryside is really fun. And, and I like Sandman and his cool roadster. He looks really cool. So again, it's, this is one of these characters that would be done better, done better later on, but I, I still really like him because that, that outfit is just boss. And we have Dan Belmont here who is yep. probably less of just a romantic interest than she is a sidekick. She is best yep. actually a participant in his adventures and helps out, and of course, uh, you know that would be a very uh, that would be expanded upon in Sandman Mystery Theater, which right. is basically right. a, a, a carrying on of this era. And yep. uh, I, I just love that. Uh, you know, there there's something that should be a treasury: Sandman Mystery Theater. Oh well, geez. But, uh, <laughs> I want everything. But yeah, this treasure. the tone of this is is very uh, grotesque. It's very pulpy. It's yep. it's almost a drawback to the 30s, and I think that's one of the reasons why they had to. They felt um, that Morton Weisinger and then later Jack Kirby felt they had to go more superhero-y with the you know getting the sidekick and the skin-tight costume and the change in tone and such. And I think they felt that, uh, you know, kids weren't going to go for that. They wanted to go more for the Batman and Robin sort of style. And then Kirby, of course, took that and ran with it. And, and I don't dislike those uh, those stories at all. I think they're incredible. They're, they just seem to be a different character is all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, next up is the Chris Dr. Fate, uh, drawn by Howard Sherman. And I, I don't know about, about you, Gord, but uh, I, this is my favorite story, partly because I, you know, I love Dr. Fate, another character. I mean, I love all the JSAers, but I love Dr. Fate. But I really like Howard Sherman's art because all the panels, they kind of look like hieroglyphics, the way he's done the panels. It's got, they're all these vert- horizontal strip panels, and they're all Scalping the same size. kind of a thing. Yeah, and I just, and I love the, um, the little, the little, ri- little, uh, divots on the the meanwhile sort of the the captions at the top it really gives this a very particular style and while it's still a little bit on the crude side it looks to me it looks very distinctive and it really pops uh, among all these other stories so this was kind of my favorite one and plus I just, again like i said i just like Doctor. well fate. dr fate is just such an amazing look i mean the, yeah. the balance of color is perfect um you know that iconic helmet in the medallion which of course they're able to be expand on i think that's the, the interesting thing about golden age you know it might not be your bag but what they have done is they have given you the base stock of what could be a great soup or a great stew later on <laughs> and of course you know they've never stopped talking about how dr fate's helmet works i mean it goes right. on with pasco and into the 80s series and and you name it well shag knows more about that than i do but uh, yeah, I, and, the, and you can almost see that uh, we don't really get a, sh- uh, a shot of Kent, Kent Nelson here. No, we but don't. But 
you know that uh, you almost get this idea that fate is some but something and someone else. Mm-hmm. And of course, at one point here, he he just burns this guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's he's broken his neck, and he just like this. I don't want you reincarnating, so I'm going to burn you. So, <laughs> so apparently, cremation <laughs> stops the the uh, the reincarnation stages. I don't know. <laughs> So after that is the Johnny Thunder story, which, as I said, is a text piece, actually. It's called Guarding an Heiress, and it's a uh, one-and-a-half-page text piece. And, you know, the old comics used to have all all the way up into the 60s. They had these text This was pieces. a requirement. Right. It was, a, it was a, a to get a certain postal rates. You had to have a certain amount of, like, text material uh, to qualify for certain postal rates. So I think that's why they you had these all the way into the mid-60s. And we also have this uh, this ad here for okay, who do you want to see in the next quarterly? Like, like uh, Superman and Batman were appearing in Action and Detective, respectively, and uh, they also had their own books, which were actually quarterly. So now they they're going okay. Now that you've seen all of these characters here in All Star, who who who's the next ones you'd like to go quarterly? <laughs> and uh, and uh, just just to it's Flash and Green Lantern. They 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 end up winning. They get their own books. And at that point in time, they have to leave the JSA. They have to become honorary members because, hey, we don't want you overexposed. (laughs) Johnny Thunder, we're not working. Yeah, exactly. Uh, There's there's an ad for the Hop Harrigan Flying Club, which you could join. Ah, man. Did you look at some of the uh, premiums you can get? A beautifully engraved membership card containing all the rules of the club. Don't want trouble with the Hop Harrigan All-American Flying Club. And a beautiful golden winged emblem illustrated above. I would love to have that. That looks pretty. That looks pretty I sharp. Probably I have to say. you can see it here. Probably a brass thing. And the opportunity to enter many contests for prizes and free trips. So, mm. what kind of a trip do you think we could get out of the Hop Harrigan All American Flying Club out of ten cent comic? <laughs> Take me to New York. Show yeah, I might get to the Calgary Stampede, but. <laughs> By the way, I should mention in the Johnny Thunder bit where he introduces his own text piece, he mentions the editors of the comic book. So Johnny Thunder knows he's in a comic book. Oh, yeah. The, so this, this this book breaks the fourth wall. Oh, the fourth wall. walls, yeah, busted all over the place. And that was the fun. You know, that was – I think they were just kind of taking you out of the book and, and letting people know that, hey, this is this is something we're making. Uh, and then we get the, the Adam story where he foils the, uh, the gold robbery. Again, it's not bad. It's fine. It's not anything – uh, and I think it's terribly special. Again, I like the Adam. I like this costume. This is another character who they gave a new costume to, and the new costume to me is not as interesting. The the one with the headpiece and the little fin. Uh, I don't like that one as much as this. I just like the little uh, wrestler mask that he's got here. Well, if you remember when you talked about uh, the, uh, the the new fun number one and the Charles Atlas ads, I think that's this is the idea of what the Adam is. Is for people that don't yeah. know, this isn't the shrinking Adam. This guy has absolutely right, zero a, powers yeah. at this point. He's just a brawler. Point basically. in time, and basically he's a little guy that uh, that you know. He basically he's he's read the Charles Atlas ads. He's tired of getting sand kicked in his face, and he keeps the costume and he puts a, a mask over his head, and it's a full mask. And this was Roy Thomas's favorite character. And he did a lot with the Atom in the in All Star Squadron and Infinity Inc. Uh, just because of that, he liked the idea of the little guy that just made himself better. And it's a little bit of you know what uh, you know what Steve Rogers might have been had the uh, government not got a hold of him. Um, <laughs> he might have read a Charles Atlas ad and become the Atom. 
And it's a, a fun notion. I never thought about that, but yeah. I, I love like the khaki army uniforms and the Smokey the Bear hats that the army has here. <laughs> and I have to say that the dumbest, uh, the dumbest person in this book is not Johnny Thunder, it's Mary James. She has gone out on an expedition with this guy that she knows is only four foot eight. And all of a sudden, the Adam shows up, you know, this guy that's four foot eight. And then she goes and she's going to take the mask off of him. And then Adam wakes up. Oh, no, I'll never know who he is now. <laughs> I have to remember, I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, I, even as a kid, I was like, well, why is there a team that has Spectre and Dr. Fate on it? And also the Adam, because what does he bring to it? But of course, retroactively, uh, we have already uh, written the DC special number 29, The Secret Origin of the Justice Society, which is one of my favorite single issue comics of all time. And that story technically takes place before this story. And in that story, uh, the Adam saves the life of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yes, uh, he he takes he takes the Valkyrie's blast and and takes the hit for him. So obviously, to the JSA, he was a valued member of the team because he came in in the clutch. Can I do the quote, or are you contractually obligated? Only you can do the quote. Go ahead. You, you can't the... split an Adam. <laughs> That's a much better FDR than I could do. But yeah, I I got to we have to do an issue a podcast on that story because man, I love that story so much. It's just so. It's so Count beautifully done. So, yeah. Um, so then we move on to the Green Lantern story, which, re- again, we find we knew in later comics that Green Lantern supposedly took place. All his stories took place in Gotham City. I think this is my favorite um, of the. Of- but this, this, that obviously can't. That actually isn't valid in this story because he talks about the corrupt police commissioner named Mason yeah, in this story. Around. And there, yeah, yeah, and there is no, you know, where's where's Commissioner Gordon? So they obviously they probably weren't paying a whole lot of attention to the details of all that. And I, I to be honest, I never liked the idea that Green Lantern was in Gotham City. To me, Batman is the only hero that should be in Gotham City. But that's you know, it, it's part of established continuity. At this I point. love Alan Scott. I think he's my favorite of the Green Lanterns. Um, not to shed any light on Jordan and all the rest, but I, I just think he's got a unique origin. Uh, he's got mm-hmm. a very, very complicated origin. I don't know if you've read the whole thing. Um, Martin Nodell apparently came with all of these ideas, and the editors just looked at it and says, wow, what are we going to do with all of this? So they assigned none other than Bill Finger. So it's no wonder he gets to Gotham City. Um, oh, right. And there Bill Finger synthesizes that whole thing. And, and Nodell, of course, is the artist. But I've always loved the look of him. I don't care how colorblind he looks. You know, he just he's like a, a Superman and a Green Lantern put together. Or sorry, a Superman and a Batman put together. He's got the look of the Batman and he's got the attitude of the Batman as well. And if you kind of go through this book, he uses the ring really very sparingly. Um, for the most part, you know, when he gets mad, you know, you're going to get a sock in the chops. And you're not going to get hit with a, a, a boxing glove or something like that made from his ring. He uses the <laughs> ring mostly as a as a truth detector or a lie detector, I should say. He uses it to be able to walk through walls. And, and really, you know, it shows up very sparingly. And, of course, he can be beat up by a two-by-four, which is probably <laughs> the original kryptonite um, before there was a kryptonite. You know, this is if a super... the idea of you've got a powerful character. Now, how do we keep him down to earth? How do we keep him be able to be beat- uh, beatable? Is that a word? Uh, I mean, we're, yeah, we're in the Trump era. Yeah. It's, a, it's a word. Uh, <laughs> um, he, you know, he can be defeated, you know, with something as simple as an organic piece of wood, which when you think about the alien origin – of his ring and his lantern, it makes sense. You know, the, 
mm-hmm. the earth and the, the organic things are rebelling against this presence. If I was a villain, uh, if I was a Green Lantern villain, I would just do all my crimes at like a Home Depot, <laughs> you know, and it would just be constantly, ha ha, Green Lantern, <laughs> like I knocked over another Lowe's, <laughs> damn it, <laughs> thwarted it again, all right. But Hal, Jor- Hal uh, Jordan can't get out of the mustard section, so... Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, so after Green Lantern tells his story, like I said, the J Flash comes back with a note and says uh, that basically J Edgar Hoover wants to uh, see us, and they're like, "Okay, we're all in." And then they head out, and then right at the end, the Flash looks right at the reader and says, "Just the last word, boys and girls." Before I had girls, like they read comics. Before I leave with the rest of the fellows, be sure to read the announcement from our editors on the next page, and then there is a repeat of the image of them around the table. And then it talks about All-Star Comics quarterly one and two. We're both complete sellouts. And they talk about how All-Star Comics is going bi-monthly and the, uh, and the editors of All-Star Comics. And it's saying, here, this is what you can expect from now on. So, bang, you know, history's made. Yeah, it's nice that The Flash was so inclusive. Letting very nice. girls yeah, know I mean, that, hey, yeah, you're welcome into this book as well. I'm making a joke, but of course, girls read, lots of girls read comics in the 1940s because there were comics for girls. If they were around, <laughs> they, they were going to read them. Yeah. We didn't, we, you know, comics, there were comics for everybody back then. And so that's the end of the comic. Uh, the one last thing I do want to mention is the back cover. Uh, there is the ad, like you said, it's famous first edition. This always reprints the ads as the, We're not going to buy a flying dive bomber? No, I, I well, <laughs> I, I love in the edition it says, these ads are probably not valid anymore. So I wouldn't say, don't send your money in. These things are considered null and void. But on the back cover, we see Superman. You can buy Superman's crypto ray gun, and there's a there's a drawing of Superman. So he does make his way into this. Comic. I was wondering, is this the first? Super, is the crypto ray gun the first uh, Superman merchandising? That's a good question. There was a a Superman tin toy made around this time, but I think it, that might that might be after this. We're only two years in so here. Th- yeah, this might be this might be the very first piece of Superman merchandise. I know that's a that's a question for all the Superman experts out there. Bob Fisher, Michael Bailey, uh, Henry Bernstein. Those guys are all know Superman better than than I do. So that's a good question for them. But here he is, and it's it's clearly whoever drew it uh, was probably working for this company, the American Specialty Company, because this is a pretty crude looking Superman. Oh yeah, he's got a re- he's got a receding hairline. He's got no spit curl, and he's holding this crypto ray gun like he's a copper. So it's a uh, it's not really a Superman that I think DC would have approved of in any other. He's story. faster than a speeding ready ray gun. <laughs> so that's uh, that's All Star Comics number three, Famous First Edition number seven. It's the penultimate issue of Famous First Edition uh, in its original run. Uh, as we mentioned, Flash Comics number one would follow this, and then that would be the last one for four years until they reprinted Superman number uh, one uh, for the the tie into the Superman movie, and then that was pretty much it. For famous first editions all the way up until 2020, until the book uh, came out that I just talked about with Chuck Coletta last month. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I love these famous first editions. Yeah, some of the work is pretty crude, but as a kid, I appreciated, like I said, this window into another world, another era of comics that I wasn't familiar with. And I still have this same copy. I mean, like you, these books hold up literally and figuratively. I had a few notes referring to a personal relationship, and I always think about my mom and dad. They, of course, were farm kids. They grew up around the same town that I did. And so I, I think about in 1940, my mom always talked about reading Superman comics, but mostly from the newspaper strips. She said she had never had an actual comic book. And my dad, you know, in those days, uh, he'd be, he was 13, 14 years old. He's more looking to get in trouble. He's looking for a pack of cigarettes, not a, go- a comic book. <laughs> 
But um, my mom would have been about 14, and uh, theoretically, they would have been able to buy this comic. But I say theoretically. My dad would not have. He didn't have any time with. But coming out of the Depression, as I say, a dime was the difference between eating and not eating. But mm-hmm. you know what? In fact, in that town, there was no way they actually could have bought All-Star Number 3 if they wanted to, or any other American comic. They were in Canada, and Canada had entered the war in September of 1939, and our country was under a wartime restricted managed economy, sort of like COVID-19, and and we had a war machine that we had to build up in order to back Britain and fight the Battle of the Atlantic, which my uncle was a part of, and anything deemed an unnecessary import that could take badly needed money out of the national economy was cut off at the border. U.S. publishing took a big hit, and among, well, let's face it, society's favorite whipping boy comics uh, were not available. (laughs) But there was a demand, and there was a response. There was a whole field of Canadian comics and superheroes that popped up in response. And they weren't color. They they were called the Canadian Whites. And there was four different publishing companies published in black and white. Um, One of them was was called Nelvana of the Northern Lights, and she actually beats Wonder Woman as the first... Uh, heroine, a first superheroine by just a few months in August of 1941. But actually, Red Tornado has them all beat since she showed up in June of 1939 in the Scribbly Strip. There was also a character that um, could have been in the All-Stars. His name was Johnny Canuck. He was kind of a blend of Captain America with the Iron Monroe character. (laughs) Johnny Canuck. And he was just a powerfully strong soldier in a Canadian Army uniform. But every now and then, the, the tunic and the shirt had to come off whenever he went into action, fighting bare-chested. And like Captain America, he also socked Uncle Adolf in the jaws. Hmm. So that was a... There was a happy, of course, piece of fallout for this famous first edition. We're in 1975, and before that's off the calendar, we will have All-Star Comics and the JSA back with a vengeance. That's right. I, I always I said I've always loved these characters, and I was glad that they got... I mean, All-Star Comics number three is such a huge milestone in the history of comic books that I'm sure DC didn't hesitate to do it. And the fact that they did Flash Comics number one is a little surprising, uh, considering. Uh, but I'm glad they did, because I said, these are all big... Moments in DC Comics' history, and I'm glad that the JSA got another bite at that apple, got to come back. They never got quite the run. I don't think they ever got quite the chance uh, to, to 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 really show off uh, how great they were later on uh, that they should have. I always sad that you know the crisis basically sort of wiped out their usefulness in a lot of ways, and that always always bothered me. But I'm said I. I'm always so glad that the, they got this chance at Treasury Greatness because they deserve it. You know, the JSA and Allies always marked my participation in comics. Um, had I not discovered them as a kid, I probably wouldn't have, you know, gone as far as I did. Um, I took hiatuses, you know, for various reasons, as you do when you grow up. I came back in 1981 for the All-Star Squadron. I always bought the summer team-ups, and I came back again after another hiatus, after the birth of my daughter, uh, in 2000 for the Robinson Jeff John series. So I've always tried to keep it together, you know, um, although that Earth 2 series and New 52 kind of, uh, I was glad to put that one to the shovel. You know, were, were anyone to ask my opinion, I would put the JSA and their friends back here in their World War II prime 
and spin yeah. untold sales, tales of the society when they're young people in the war. I think we've had enough of the legacy and the and the magical modern day revivals. I, I'm, I don't want to see 100 year old flashes running around. Yeah, I'm, you know, Sandman. How many heart attacks did the poor guy have to have before they finally <laughs> put the guy and put them back into the 40s? Um, as far as I'm concerned, go back to where the crisis started um, in May of 1942 and let them play out the war. Yeah, it's like uh, what Will Eisner said about the Blackhawks. They were created for World War II and they belong in World War II. Exactly. And I always agree with that. The Blackhawks, that's where they belong, and so does the JSA. So it's a great comic. Uh, it's its really fun, and I love this as a famous first edition. So, uh, Gord, thank you so much for, for doing this and talking with me about it. It was, it was really fun. I, I really enjoyed it. This is my first time uh, appearing on the Fire and Water Network. Uh, I hope I won't be thrown off yet. <laughs> Well, we'll see. Uh, so why don't you tell people where they can find you on the Internet? Well, I'm on Facebook as Ranger Gord, and I interact with a lot of the pod community, including Fire and Water, whether they want me there or not. I have a WordPress blog called Ranger Gord's Roundup, which is embarrassingly dormant right now, and that's where I promote my own books. I'm, a, I'm an historical author, and I generally chat on my historical interests. I'm the author of eight books, um, three of which you can find in the Amazonish type locations. Uh, Healy's West, uh, Cowboy Cavalry, and Prairie Warships. Uh, I do manage a podcast. I don't call it my podcast because I do it for the museum that I work for. And the podcast is called Radio KBPV. That stands for Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, and that's the museum. Uh, you can find that on Apple or Podbean or Google Play, or you can come visit the museum's page at uh, kootenaybrown.ca. And uh, Kootenai is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. It's a and, and brown, of course. It's uh, the name of a of a Canadian historical figure. And we can see links to the podcast, and then you can explore the rest of the museum. So that podcast has really no comics relationship, but it's very focused on southwestern Alberta history. Uh, I have some podcasts for kids, audio tours the museum and museum events and such and tours of pioneer cemeteries and other surprises and 99 percent <laughs> of the time you'll find me here in southern alberta so if you pass through headed to the calgary stampede i'm here under the big sky <laughs> very, very cool all right well thanks everybody for listening i want you to stay tuned i'm going to play some podcast promos and when i come back i'm going to do some listener feedback welcome to radio kbpv tales of kootenay brown pioneer village a podcast about the history of southwestern alberta Presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. The Too Old, Too New Podcast, a show dedicated to reviewing books from the bins and recent reads. I'm Bill. And I'm Seth. Be sure to listen to us on our Too Old, 
Too New Comic Book Podcast, where we talk about two old comic books and two new comic books every episode. Comic book fans don't miss out. Too Old, Too New is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play. And it's time for listener feedback, and this time around we'll be covering the feedback for Treasure Cast number 47, where Professor Chuck Coletta and I covered famous first edition New Fun Comics number one. But before we get to the feedback on the website, which is, of course, finewaterpodcast.com, I do want to read some new iTunes reviews. We have some new iTunes slash Apple Podcast reviews. It's always so exciting. makes me so happy. So let's get right to them. First one is from Jason, the comic fan. Five stars, recapturing my childhood. This is a wonderful podcast. Plenty of time is taken to absorb each issue on every episode. There is such good enthusiasm for all the treasuries that it makes me want to get them all. Thank you very much, Jason. That's just great. I really do appreciate it. And then the second review is from John Boy H. from Bama. Uh, He says, a superb comics podcast for comics greatest format. Five stars. Treasury format comics are bigger than a tabloid coffee table covering editions. Rob Kelly, the host of the show, likes to say that it's the greatest comics format of all time. Comic creators use treasuries to tell epic stories, and Rob discusses those stories and their outsized art here. And as if his ebullient passion, encyclopedic knowledge, and razor-sharp wit weren't enough, wow, uh, Rob brings on guests that rival him in all those aspects, and iron sharpens iron. Pick a treasury edition you love and listen to the show's coverage of it, or just start at the beginning. Either way, you'll probably listen to them all. Thank you very much, John Boy. That is uh, just a wonderful review and bonus points for using the word ebullient. Uh, Those are just super. I really appreciate the Apple Podcast reviews, as of course, it helps get the show noticed every new review uh, we get so again i really really do appreciate it and um another comment uh, i want to read again before we get to the feedback on the website is i got an email from a uh, listener named steven zanin and he wrote in to say okay full disclosure when i first saw this particular episode pop up in my listen now section i thought really a full episode on this comic why i didn't even dive right in like usual i actually waited a few days because i was so underwhelmed historical status aside i could not imagine how this subject could carry through an entire podcast. Well, color me four color stupid. <laughs> Good one, Stephen. Because I was blissfully entertained by the full conversation. I'm still stunned that the Jack Atlas ad, which I remember so well from my 1970s childhood, was continually published for 40-some years. And Rob, I instantly thought of the Mad Magazine parody of Gasoline Alley when the strip was first mentioned, and then you brought it up yourself. I think you, we think we share a past somehow. Thanks for the great work. Continue to cast positivity and fun into the world. Well, thank you, Stephen. And I appreciate uh, your willingness to kind of say, initially, do I want to hear a whole show on this? I think that was a lot of people's reaction. And uh, luckily, it ended up being a a very, very popular show. We'll get to that in a a second, some of the other comments. But uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate that you persevered uh, to listen to the show and not just giving up on it. Because, yeah, I I knew it was kind of an obscure pick, but uh, I really did want to cover the book for multiple reasons. So uh, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it, and thank you so much for taking the time to write. So anyway, now we're going to get to the comments on the website, which is, uh, like I said, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Martin Gray, first up, he says, uh, that was just fascinating. Thanks, Rob and Chuck. I've not bought this, but have been tempted, and you may have pushed me over the edge. The context that came with the countdown and criticism of contents, congratulations. I like all those Cs, Martin. The Charles Atlas ad is great. I also hadn't realized the man went back so far. How fab to see the Edwardian-ish bathing outfits. My dad sent away for the course. 
didn't work. <laughs> that's, that's unfortunate, Martin. But yes, uh, that was again. It was shocking to me when I first opened the book that Charles Atlas went back uh, that far. I don't think anybody really realized that because uh, a lot of people mentioned it uh, on the feedback. Uh, Chuck Coletta, of course, our guest on that episode, uh, responded. He said, "FYI, skizix is actually a cowboy slang for an orphan calf." Wow, it's the second mention of calves in this episode, which is appropriate for a baby left on a doorstep. The strip was launched in 1918 and is still running. You can find it online at GoComics.com. And there were actually two 1951 movies. Also, there were a few hardcover Walt and Skizix collections now available, reprinting the first several years. It's never really laugh out funny, more warmly humorous observations of daily life. Thank you once again, Chuck, always bringing the information. Um, I had no idea that there were Gasoline Alley movies. I mean, it shouldn't surprise me, I guess, because there was like 50 Blondie movies. So, and there was Little Abner, and there was lots of, I mean, there was a Dondi movie for Pete's sake. So I guess uh, it makes sense that there were Gasoline Alley movies, but I've certainly never heard of them or seen them. Uh, Edo Bosnar says, I used to read Gasoline Alley from late grade school and all through high school, so basically all through the first half of the 1980s. I found it really engaging with very likable characters and often amusing, although, yeah, no laugh-out-loud gags. I also remember, sometime in college, reading a book about comics reprinted some of the Gasoline Alley Sunday pages from the 30s. They were absolutely amazing, beautifully drawn and designed, and often featuring almost surreal imagery. Great show yet again. Of course, I expect nothing less from Treasury Cast. What an interesting book to cover, the first ever DC comic. It's surprising to me that it hasn't been reprinted more often or just much earlier. And Chuck was the perfect guest for this one. I thoroughly enjoyed his insights into this book. Thank you, Edo. And yes, Chuck was the perfect guest. He's always a perfect guest. I've had him on a bunch of my shows, and he is always fun to talk to. Uh, Gary Dunair. I hope I'm saying that right, Gary, responded to Edo by saying uh, DC was going to include new fun number one in its Millennium series of reprints back in 2000. Jerry Bales' introduction was originally written for that planned reprint. I mentioned that in the show, but those plans were scrapped because of copyright issues regarding the Oswald strips. Given that the original new fun number one was in tabloid size, I wonder how it would have looked when reduced to current comic book dimensions, which is how I presume a Millennium edition new fun would have appeared. Yeah, that did not even occur to me, Gary, that, yeah, the, this this book would have been, I don't know, like almost unreadable at a smaller standard comic book size. All those strips would have been reduced down to nothing, especially some of the more uh, intensely drawn ones. So, yeah, I think it's probably good that they didn't do a Millennium Edition, and we ended up getting this giant size one the way it, 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 uh, it needs to be. I mean, most of the time, it's smaller material that gets blown up for a treasury. Very rarely does it go in the opposite direction. Uh, there are some smaller size reprints of some of the DC Marvel team-ups, but uh, generally, uh, the comics don't go from big to small like that. So, yeah, this I think this would have been pretty pretty hard to read in, a, in any uh, smaller format. Captain Entropy stops by and says, thanks for doing this one, guys, and thanks especially to Dr. Coletta for coming on the show. I love it when Fire and Water brings the academics on because I'm also that kind of nerd. I'm actually only a few minutes into the show, but you've inspired some amateur research into Sandra of the Secret Service. Here we go, everybody. Strap in. My first thought was that Sandra McLean, who apparently existed on Earth 2 in pre-crisis continuity, was an agent of a Secret Service, not the U.S. Secret Service that started as a division of the Treasury Department hunting counterfeiters and picked up protection duties when President McKinley asked them to. Outside the U.S., and I think even here before the Treasury Secret Service was well known, the term Secret Service refers to any government service of a secret nature, a Merriam-Webster definition. A website called SpiesGuysAndGals.com concurs with my hypothesis in their article about Sandra. Their take is that this is not the Secret Service as we know it, but rather a catch-all name for some intelligence bureau in the American Alphabet Soup Group, which one is never revealed. 
Websites focused on comics disagree, however, linking Sandra to the U.S. Secret Service. Wikipedia says, with no reference I could confirm, that the U.S. Secret Service once did domestic intelligence and counterintelligence. That would come closer to justifying Sandra's adventures, but if Wikipedia is correct, they only did those things until 1908 when the FBI was established. I will sum up my attempt to no prize these discrepancies by saying that Earth 2 is different because comics, asterisk. Regardless, kudos to Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson of the U.S. Cavalry and all the creators who told us about Sanders' adventures for making a woman the highly capable protagonist of an action-adventure strip in 1935. Asterisk, is it Michael Bailey I owe money to when I use that excuse? I can never remember. Uh, yes, Captain Entropy, it is Michael Bailey who came up with the Because Comics uh, reasoning. Uh, thank you for that deep dive on Sandra of the Secret Service. Uh, that was uh, way more work than I would have been willing to put into it, and uh, I appreciate you going the extra mile and letting us know. And then in response to Captain Entropy, we got a comment from Nikki Wheeler Nicholson, who is the granddaughter of Major Wheeler Nicholson, and she is the author of the book DC Comics Before Superman, which I have a copy of and I cannot wait to dig into. So Nikki says, hi, Captain Entropy. The Major was in military intelligence circa 1916-1917. He was literally sent to Siberia with the American Expeditionary Force and at one point on a supposed secret mission to the border of China near Tibet. His mother, Antoinette, was a suffragette, thus our hyphenated last name, Wheeler Nicholson. Sandra has been attributed to Charles Flanders, but Jerry Bales notes most of the scripts as written by Major Wheeler Nicholson. Flanders never claimed this creation, was not a writer, and throughout his long career only created only one character for King Features, Robin Hood. How do you create Robin Hood? Those facts, along with Sandra occupying the highly prized real estate of the first comic in the magazine, suggest that MWN is the creator. I'm a big Sandra fan. Well, thank you so much for stopping by, Nikki. I really appreciate it. Uh, like I said, I can't wait to read your book. It's, it's going to be a, a super fun read to learn all about DC Comics before Superman. And I suggest that you can go to Amazon and pick, uh, pick the book up. Uh, give, it a, give it a read. Uh, it sounds uh, really, really fascinating. Gothos Mansion uh, leaves a comment. He says, as always, I enjoy the show and getting a little more background on the characters. Rob mentioned that no one else he knew bought this. Well, Rob, you don't know me, but I did buy it. So now you know someone that you don't know bought it. I have all the other Famous First editions, and I had to keep my collection complete. I hear you there, Gothos. Seriously, I couldn't turn down the chance to read the first DC comic book ever published. I was glad to get a chance to read this. Thank you, Gothos. Matt Sir Royce says, Thanks for not only another great treasury cast, but for alerting me to this book's existence. This is a great piece of comic book history and will make a great addition to my library. That it will, Matt. Chris Franklin from our network says, great show. I was unaware this was out already. See, see, DC didn't do any publicity for this thing. No one seemed to know it was out. I will need to pick it up just to have this piece of DC history in my hands. It does seem odd that current DC did such a deep dive into non-commercial material like this. There is a through line from Major Will Nicholson to Paul Levitz with enough of an overlap of staff to keep some connective tissue to the past, but the Didio era largely cut out most of these long-running ties. So it is surprising to see this published, but I'm very glad it was. Professor Chuck is a great guest, and it's always a pleasure to hear from him. I want to one day sit in on at least one of his classes. Yeah, co-sign to that, Chris. That would be uh, fascinating. I would love to. I've never met Chuck. I would love to meet him in person. And, yes, I would love to sit in on one of his classes. That's probably a lot of fun. And then, finally, uh, we got a comment from Sidney Sapper Osinga, who says, I ordered this. I didn't know it was out due to problems Diamond has been having. Luckily, it wasn't sold out. Thanks for letting me know. Uh, you're welcome, Sydney. Thanks to you know. You're welcome, everybody, for alerting you that this book was out, and that was the main reason I wanted to cover this. I mean, first off, of course, it's because it's a, a new, famous first edition. I couldn't turn that down, but also just because, as I mentioned with Chuck, it's a very uncommercial project. It, it features a bunch of features that nobody's really going to care about for the most part. 
And and the only way DC will ever do more of these tabloids and more of these famous first editions is if this one sells halfway decently. So I'm going to do whatever I can, my part, to get it noticed. So I'm glad everybody enjoyed this episode, despite maybe having initial concerns that we're going to do a whole show on this very obscure book. And, of course, thanks again to Chuck Coletta for stopping by. So that is going to do it. That's all the comments. That's all the iTunes reviews. That's the emails. Thanks, everybody, for all the commentary. I really, really do appreciate it. And, of course... Big thanks to Gord Tolton for coming by, making his debut on the Fire and Water Podcast Network to talk about another famous first edition, All-Star Comics number three, a bit more commercial than the last one. Uh, again, thanks so much for Gord. I had a blast talking to him. So that's going to do it. Of course, uh, we're always talking treasuries on Twitter at Treasury Comics. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, and all our back episodes are on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. And finally, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if uh, you love TreasuryCast, uh, please go to fireandwaterpodcast.com page on Patreon and support the network, and you can get mentioned right here on TreasuryCast. So that's going to do it for this month. Uh, thanks, everybody, again, for listening. And until uh, next episode, go big or go home. With his army of evil on the march, Bird Degaton appears to have time on his side. But when duty calls, they answer, bringing the fight for freedom to the front lines. They are the mystery men and women known as the Justice Society of America. America.